just want to say, I'm really excited. Uh, where is he? Where's Luke? He's over there. I'm really excited uh, to uh, see Luke's appointment as the acting uh, senior pastor for this next season. It's a bit of an end of an era uh, for us as the Hannafers. We planted um, part of God planting this church, City Reach Marion, back in 2018, more than five years ago. And uh, now we're coming to the end of our time here and moving up. We've moved up actually to Mount Barker uh, to plant a new church, Grace Hills Church, which we're praying that God will use to bring the grace of Jesus to the people of Mount Barker because Jesus loves them. He died on the cross that they might know him and he rose from the dead that they might have eternal life. So we're really excited about that, but I'm really pleased uh, that Luke's going to this role. And I encourage you, um, probably the most important thing you can do is to pray. Uh, in this season. The second most important thing you can do is encourage. It's really important to pray for and encourage your leaders. The Bible tells us to do that and I want to encourage uh, you as a church to do that. I really believe that this is a new season for City Reach Marion. Um, Beck shared very well before that there's different um, seasons of life, uh, there's different uh, seasons in the atmosphere and meteorology. There's also different seasons in church and we're entering a new one where God is going to continue uh, to build and to grow his church and the gates of hell will continue to not prevail against Jesus building his church. So I want to pray uh, that God bless us through his word uh, as we come to it now. Father, I want to thank you uh, so much. Just, uh, just thinking about the season that you've brought City Reach Marion into. And Lord, as we come to your word now, uh, we ask that you would teach us through it, that we might know Jesus better as a result uh, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you would say to us now. So I, I need help with that by your Holy Spirit. So help me uh, and help us all. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we are looking at the book of Genesis. We are up to chapter 5 this week. Genesis has 50 chapters so we're not there yet, people. We've got a long way to go to get through Genesis. Don't you worry. One of the things we do at City Reach Marion is um, we go through books of the Bible. Typically what we do, not every time, but typically what we do is just go through section by section. And the reason for that is because we take the word as God has given it to us. But you'll find that we don't just read the text. We seek to explain it in such a way that God would speak to us today. And so we look at the text and we go, well, what's in this for us? What stands out in particular? What did you notice with a genealogy? You know, a list of people's names, how long they lived for, you know, when they died and then their descendants and on and on it goes. This is an unusual thing. It's very common actually throughout the Bible. We get lots of genealogies throughout the Bible. This tends to have a particular pattern to it of how it works. What did you notice? Did you notice people lived a lot longer? Got some 800 years in there, 900 even for some, I think, or 895, Mahalalel. Was there one that lives for longer? Oh, there we go. Someone was watching closely. Very good. 969 years. That's a long time, isn't it? Was that what stood out to you? You know, it, it, with our um, modern scientific thinking, Almost immediately, go, immediately we go, well, people don't live that long now, so maybe it was a bit allegorical. But actually, in an ancient world, that wouldn't have been the big thing that they were looking at in the text. Did you know that some of the Babylonian kings were thought to have lived for 30,000 years? Which we don't believe, of course, that's ridiculous. But the world was different back then. And so what we do do when we come to the Bible is we do take it on face value. Some things we can't explain. But I actually want to point out one thing which stands out to me from this text. And it's unusual because it's the only person in this genealogy for which this is mentioned. This is verse 22. Enoch walked with God. Do you notice that? Only one person in our text today is said to have walked with God. It says it again in verse 24. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Everyone else died. Enoch was not, for God took him. This man stands out amongst generations of people because he walked with God. That's what we're going to look at this morning. What does it mean to walk 
with God. Well, I think the first thing it means is to trust God in life's difficulties. As we've gone through the book of Genesis, we've seen that the fall in Genesis chapter 3 has created problems in the world, primarily through sin, but also through the curse as a result of sin. That means that life does not work out as it ought to. Even with your best intentions, your life will not amount to everything you imagine it could. And we all know that. Right? We have experience of that. Our relationships don't work out. They start and sometimes they finish. Our jobs don't work out as we might have hoped. We might have had astronomical expectations for our jobs and careers. They may not have worked out as we'd hoped. Finances, you might have put in some investments and had them go wrong. And this is just a small snapshot of how things work. It's explained here that uh, the land was cursed in that people would sow crops and they would only reap maybe 10% some years because of the weather patterns. It varies greatly because of the curse. And so we experience life's difficulties because of sin, because of the curse in this world. And we all know that, right? Life is hard is just a commonly accepted statement for all of us. We see that here in our text. We noticed that actually God raised up someone called Noah and Noah's father, Lamech, called him Noah because he said, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, meaning Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And so life for people in the ancient world, just like today, was extremely difficult. They didn't have modern medicine then, they didn't have a welfare system. And so people died... Well, except for these examples, later on, they died young. We know that because if you go to a, um, a, a graveyard or uh, such like in our country and you look at people from the 1900s and the 1800s and you look at the age in which they died, 40, 50, 60, it doesn't usually go past about 60 because life was difficult. People wanted relief from the difficult world. But someone who walks with God trusts him. He trusts him in this world. In 1989, uh, Billy Joel released a song called We Didn't Start the Fire. And people didn't really like uh, the song actually that much. Um, It was sort of critically put down a a bit. In fact, Billy Joel didn't like it that much. But people bought it. Right, people were interested in, it and it's quite a, got a catchy turn, tune to it. And basically, what Billy Joel said is he just essentially took note of all of the major world events through particular names and places and those kind of things over the last forty years, and just put them all out there. But as you listen to the song, you realise that the world is really messy. And so his point in the refrain, "We didn't start the fire." is that the world is broken and messy and we inherited a mess. It's true for us today as well. We have inherited a mess. And so what do we do about that? What do we do about that? Well, someone who walks with God, is another way of saying that someone who trusts God in the midst of life's difficulties. It's someone who sees the difficulty of their life They see the difficulty in the lives of others and they go, my best bet is to trust in God in whom all blessings flow from. In whom, even if everything falls apart, he will never fall apart. There's a a book on prayer by a guy called O. Hallersby and he says that the best kind of prayer is the prayer of helplessness. The reason he says that is because when you really think about your life and your ability to pray to a holy, righteous and good God, when you really think about it in a totally logical and reasonable way, you come to the conclusion you bring nothing to the table for him. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from us. And so perhaps the greatest act of trust in God is to bring your helpless state to him in prayer and that is what he greatly delights in because he is like a father to the cry of his children or even he describes it like a mother who hears the cry of the child, the infant 
and we've got some new parents here. And so the mum knows almost immediately the child needs something and will attend to the child when it's appropriate. The child doesn't even say anything verbal at that, like doesn't form words at that point, but the parent knows the needs of the child. How much more does a heavenly father listen to the prayer of helplessness from his children? That is a great act of trust in life's difficulties. So the first thing that someone does who walks with God is they trust him in life's difficulties. The second thing someone does who walks with God like Enoch is obey his commandments obey his commandments there's actually not many commandments by the time you get to uh, chapter 5 of Genesis there's not many Uh, there's a few like what we of course recall uh, back in Genesis uh, chapter 2 that God had taken Adam and Eve and put them in the garden to work it and to keep it told them to look after it you know but not to eat uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we notice uh, back uh, earlier in chapter 1, he told man to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So that's a pretty big commandment. So they've been given some things to do and told to do not others. But in this case, I think it's a really good example for us that actually being obedient comes out of a relationship. The idea of walking with God is a synonym for being in close relationship with God. And so you notice that in Genesis chapter th- uh, 2, when Adam and Eve were in close relationship with God, they walked in obedience to his commandments. But when they turn away and listen to somebody else or listen to their own desires, they do not obey God's commandments. We actually uh, know a bit more about this in the New Testament. Jesus uh, says, if anyone uh, loves me, he will obey my commandments. The idea of love and obedience are held hand in hand in a relationship with God. Now, we know that. right? You and I know this because when we're in a relationship with someone, you listen to their word. Right? You listen to what they say. And you fulfill, or you ought to at least, fulfill what you say. And when you don't, it hurts the other person. It breaks relationship. And it's the same with our relationship with God. He has called us to obey His commandments. We actually uh, see in Genesis chapter 5 that we get a bit of a reset because, of course, uh, Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4 show us what sin looks like. It shows us what sin looks like for generation after generation. But then in fact, chapter 5, we get a bit of a reset because it says, This is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. It's a bit of a reset because this is what we get right at the beginning in chapter 1, the idea of God creating male and female. In the image of God, he created us. And we get a bit of a reset here. And the reset is one where God's people are to sit under his commandments. They are to trust him. We see a little bit later in the book of Genesis in chapter 12 when it comes to Abraham. What does God say to Abraham? What does God say? He says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Almost the simplest way of walking with God is to obey him. Just to take him at his word as the hymn goes. If you want to be a Christian... If you want to be a faithful Christian, read and absorb and do the Word of God. It's fairly straightforward from that point of view. That is what God has called us to do. He's called us to trust Him and He's called us to obey His commandments. We learn later in the New Testament that faith without works is dead. That is, you might claim to be a Christian. You might claim to... that you follow Jesus or that you pray or you're a good person or whatever it is and you have some sort of relationship with God. But if you do not obey the word, your faith is dead. Faith without works is dead. The Bible tells us we've got to put it into action. Of course, you can... The reverse is not true in in that case. So you can do good works but not have faith. We learn that in the New Testament as well with the Pharisees. Jesus, the people Jesus criticised the most were the religious elite. 
those who you know, did all the right things, but their heart wasn't in it. But in this case, we do know that if your heart is really in it, then your faith will have action. You will obey God's commandments. You'll be faithful to them. Uh, the, uh, Martin Luther, the famous reformer from the 16th century, uh, used to say that, in, I think in his greater catechism, uh, the book that he wrote, that the only reason that you disobey uh, the commandments 2 to 10 of the 10 commandments is because you disobey the first one, which is have no other gods before me. If you love something else, you'll go and do it. You'll only you know, disobey your parents, commit adultery, lie, cheat, steal, etc. You know, have your heart filled with pride, envy, all those kind of bad things that come out of our heart. You'll only do those things because you're not putting God first in your life. You're not in relationship with Him. So to walk with God, we need to trust Him in life's difficulties. To walk with God, secondly, we need to obey His commandments. But thirdly, we need to be changed by an experience of God in order to walk with God. Changed by an experience of God. I want you to notice in our text, it says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, to me, it's not clear whether Enoch began to walk with God after he became a father or before. He might have done it before, he might have done it after. But the point is, at some point in his life, Methuselah, sorry, at some point in his life, Enoch began to walk with God. Something happened to him. Something happened in his life to make him walk with God. Have you had an experience with God that made you walk with him, that made you trust him in life's difficulties, that made you obey his commandments more faithfully? Have you had an experience with God? This is a pattern throughout the Bible. And if you look at the lives of older, more mature Christians, you'll see it's in their lives too. They've had particular experiences of God that have changed them from the inside. If we look at Abraham, you know, he was called by God in Genesis chapter 12, but he was a messy individual. He lied, you know, he, he allowed his wife to be taken uh, by a foreign king because he failed to step up and take responsibility at the right time. Then he took responsibility at the wrong time and had an illegitimate child uh, with his wife's servant. Messy, messy, messy. That created all sorts of other problems. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham's great dream to have a child is finally fulfilled, this child is about 12 years old, Abraham, uh, Abraham is an old, old man, somewhere around 110, an old, old man, and God tells him to go and sacrifice your son, your only son, to me. What a disaster for Abraham. And yet Abraham goes almost through with it. Why? Because he trusts God. You know, God's not into child sacrifice, as it turns out. But God wanted to test what was really going on in Abraham's heart. And Abraham was willing to lay down the thing he loved most in the world because he loved someone most out of the world, God. He had experienced God since he was 75 when God first called him to when he was 110, so much so that even if it really he had to give up the thing that he treasured most, he would. Even his own child, he would do it. Which shows us something very important about God himself. Because if Abraham was willing to give up his most treasured person and relationship in the world in order to trust God, right, his son, his only son, and we see in the New Testament that God himself was willing to give up his most treasured relationship in all the world, his son, his only son for us. It shows us the length and the depth and the breadth of love that God has for us in Christ Jesus, that he was willing to lay down everything for us. But we can't stop with Abraham, can we? 
for experiences with God. We know that Moses had a great experience with God. Moses, again, when he was probably about 80, had a transformative experience with God at the burning bush. God spoke to him out of a bush that was burning but wasn't consumed. He had an experience where he became a changed and transformed man. We see later on uh, in the Bible that Joshua was a man who would not leave the tent of meeting and so became a transformed and changed man. We see later in the Bible that Ruth was transformed by the grace shown to her by Naomi and Boaz. These people are transformed by experience of God and His grace. So if you want to be a person that walks with God, you have to experience Him. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. What is that? What sort of language is that? Taste, see, it's experiential language. Intellectualism is not enough. For God, you must experience Him. You must taste and see that He is good. And if you're not living as though He is good, if you don't trust Him in life's difficulties, if you're not willing to obey His commandments, maybe you haven't tasted and seen that He is good. Or maybe you need to taste and see again. You can kind of forget Sometimes what good food tastes like. I, um, I made the mistake of saying I didn't like chicken mornay. So a tuna mornay to my wife uh, recently. And um, turns out I really do like tuna mornay, but I said, oh, I just, I hate that stuff. But anyway, I ended up cooking it and I loved it. And so I've demanded that we have tuna mornay every, every Monday. Mornay Mondays, we're going to call it. Um, <laughs> in my household, and why not? Like, why wouldn't you have tuna mornay every Monday? But the point being is that I'd forgotten, I just assumed it tasted bad. But little did I know how good and sweet and beautiful uh, the simplicity of flavours are together and the crunchiness on top. Apparently you can put cornflakes on top as well just to make it, just give it a little bit of extra crunch. Come to me for cooking advice afterwards, I'll sort you out. Um, But all that to say, it is the same, very much the same with God. You can forget Our memory will fade, your remembrance will go. But if you taste and see again, you will find that the Lord is good. You must experience Him if you want to walk with Him. Fourth, in order to walk with God, we must overcome the power of sin. Now this is quite interesting because uh, in the book of Genesis, it's very, very open about the destructiveness of sin. We get this a bit between uh, when Lord spe- the Lord speaks to Cain, uh, Adam and Eve's firstborn. And this is what he says. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Well then. We have kind of two choices before us, don't we? Either you rule over sin or sin will rule over you. That's it. It's binary. That's the only way that it works. So if you're to be faithful, if you're to walk with God, you must rule over sin because it is like crouching at the door. It has set a trap for you. You open that door, it's got you. You see what happened to Cain? He went from anger to hatred to murder. And that's what happens. When sin grabs you, it consumes you. You know, it's very interesting because uh, in Genesis chapter 4, we almost get the opposite of Genesis chapter 5. We get this list of uh, Cain's descendants. And, and they are like, you know, they're smart people. They're cultural people. You know, they invent things. They have livestock. They... They're musicians. So this just shows us, just as a side note, that being a Christian doesn't make you a great inventor or particularly good at anything. Uh, In fact, God's grace comes to just ordinary people. You don't present yourself as being good so that he might accept you. Clearly, we know that in the world, right? Some of the best musicians, artists, entrepreneurs, inventors, business people, teachers, plumbers, electricians, whatever you want to call them, aren't Christians, Right? The, the gifts of God are out there and everywhere. God gives to man life and breath and everything. But 
they are evil. In the text, we see that Cain's descendants get increasingly violent. In fact, by the time we get to Lamech, which is, there's another Lamech actually, um, of part of Seth's descendants, which is the other son of Adam and Eve. But by the time we get to Lamech, the descendant of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, we see that if a man uh, would, listen to this, he says, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Even if you hit him, he will kill you. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. He's saying that I am so violent, no one will mess with me. That's what sin does. It captures people and controls them and crushes them into a disfigured form of humanity. Interestingly, uh, this this man, uh, Lamech, here in Genesis chapter 4, is the seventh generation uh, from Adam uh, through Cain. And the seventh generation uh, from Adam through Seth is Enoch. We get the anti-Enoch, which is the excessively violent, evil person whom sin has grown and taken full control. But then with someone who walks with God, we see that happen in the seventh generation uh, through Seth. We see someone who is faithful, someone who trusts God in life's difficulties, someone who has a relationship with God, someone who obeys His commandments, someone who has an experience of God, a person who has overcome the power of sin. Has overcome the power of sin. They have essentially said, I will rule over sin and I will choose to obey God. Sin will not rule over me. You know, one of the problems, I suppose, in our society is sin. We don't know how to deal with it. In fact, our cancel culture in today's society, has shown us even more we don't know how to deal with sin. Once someone messes up big time, that's it. They're over. People seek to bring you down. And now with the internet, we can forever bring up your past sins. There is no atonement. There is no forgiveness of sins. We just have to accept that we will be forever tarnished by whatever public misdeed we have made. We're just starting to feel the effects of this in our current culture. We do not understand how to deal with sin. But we try. Uh, I read recently that Dwayne The Rock Johnson uh, went to a, uh, like a milk bar or whatever you call it in the United States, like a, a corner deli, and, um, and brought them thousands of chocolate bars because apparently he had stolen a chocolate bar from that place in his youth. And so he brought them thousands of chocolate bars and he said, if anyone wants to steal something, you just give them one out for free. And the point was he was trying to atone for past sins. He was saying, I I feel like I've achieved redemption. And people were commentating, he's achieved redemption through, you know, making up with thousands of chocolate bars for the one that he stole as a child. In the Islamic faith, they practice a thing called zakat, which is the giving to the poor. It's compulsory for all faithful Muslims that you must uh, give to the poor in particular times of year and also annually. You must give a certain amount of money to the poor in order to, uh, listen to this, cleanse your soul and your wealth. Because recognize that wealth can be achieved through bad means, through greed. And so the idea is that you can cleanse your soul and your wealth through giving to the poor. In fact, many people think like this, that we can overcome the power of sin by doing good works. Many religious people think like this. They think, Okay, I've messed up a whole lot of my life, but now if I live good from now on, if I live up to certain standards from now on, if I I get my life together now on, then maybe God will accept me. And so our feeling about our relationship with God rises and falls on how much we perceive that we're sinning. Does it not? Do you feel like that? Do you, like, take a quick stock of how you feel like your relationship with God is going, how you're walking with God in comparison to our friend Enoch in the text today. How are you walking with God? Do you feel good if you think that you're obeying the commandments? Do you feel bad about it if you think that you're not? And does it rise and fall on your level of obedience? The 
problem is that we cannot cleanse ourselves from sin. The New Testament in uh, the book of Romans goes on to say that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one. No one from the point that the book of Romans was written in about 60 AD back. No one then. No one forward to now. No one is righteous, no, not one. Uh, The book of Isaiah tells us that even our righteous deeds are like polluted garments or filthy rags. That is, we don't bring things to the table and say, God, I've been a good person, accept me. It doesn't work. Because if God is perfect and pure in every way, then he sees through even the motivations that we try to ignore. Often when we do good deeds, we're just trying to get kudos from other people. We're doing it ultimately not for God, but for ourselves, that we feel better. It's not worship. It's not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. That's really the summary of the commandments, isn't it? To love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. Do you do that? What's your record on that? What's my record on that? It's not great. And yet we are called to overcome the power of sin. And yet sin, since Genesis chapter 3, has had its hold on humanity. So much so that when we try to trust him in life's difficulties, the difficulties sometimes consume us. So much so that obeying his commandments can be very selective and perhaps increasingly so when the culture is becoming more anti-Christian. To be changed by an experience of God seems too hard. Seems like there must be an easier way. You know, these people who were changed by an experience of God in later age, which is very interesting, mind you, that means that None of us are exempt from having another experience of God which transforms us because if it happened to someone by the time they were 110, I don't think anyone here is over 110, you've got plenty of time to go, right? The point here is that even with these great uh, and important objectives, you know, that we ought to trust him to be to obey his commandments, to be changed by an experience of God, sin still seems to overcome us. So what does it mean to walk with God even so? Well, fifthly, it means to know that God walks for us. One of the uh, perhaps sad things about our text is that everyone dies in the end. Enoch was taken, but he didn't stay on earth. Friend dies and goes, this problem of sin isn't sorted out. Even the great hopeful one, Noah, comes along, but Noah dies and sin remains. But Jesus, on the other hand, did walk with God. The Bible tells us that Jesus was faithful in all his works. He always did things according to the will of the Father. The Bible tells us he trusted God in life's difficulties. You know, Jesus was human, just like us. Had a heart that beats, lungs that take in air and breathe out carbon dioxide. Jesus had blood, flesh, just like us, hair, fingernails, toenails, all the things that we just assume everybody has. Jesus had all of them, and he had all of life's difficulties along with him, and yet he trusted God in the midst of it. He obeyed the commandments of God even unto death. We learn in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus uh, you know, became, took on the form of a servant, became obedient even to the point of death. You know when someone is completely obedient where they'd rather choose death than disobedience. That was Jesus. We know Jesus knew the Father. He had an experience of God that was rock solid. When Jesus was baptized, 
And the father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, we see the same thing. When Jesus went up the mountain with Peter, James and John, and the father spoke audibly from the mountain, he said, again, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is the one who walks perfectly with God in all of his human experience. He's just like us, and yet sin had not gotten hold of him. I want you to notice that Jesus knew the joy of relationship with God as well. Not only was uh, his relationship with God, you know, a like a father-son relationship, it was a relationship filled with joy. They loved one another. And they were fulfilled in one another too. There's something special and unique about the relationship between a father and a son. And Jesus and the father had that uniquely. They still have that. In every way, these two are close together. In fact, Jesus walked with God faithfully all the way up until his own death. But even in his death, we see that his walking was not just for himself. It was not just an example for us to follow, but it was the means by which he would change us. We read this uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. And it says, For our sake, speaking about Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus had never sinned. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin, we learn in the book of Hebrews. And yet Jesus took on sin. He received sin on his body, laid on a tree, in order that he would pay its penalty and free us from its power. That was Jesus' work. You know, Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 did not die for the forgiveness of sins. He was taken, but he could not change the sin nature in humanity. He could not change the sin penalty that people died before him and people died after him. But Jesus, in his full humanity, he died. Enoch was taken and was not. But Jesus, in his full humanity's heart, stopped. And if you've thought about this before, but when Jesus was on the cross, he died biologically. That is, his heart stopped. He stopped breathing. He gave up his last breath, it says, and he yielded up his spirit. Life left his body. His soul departed from the flesh. Enoch didn't do that, but Jesus did. And Jesus did that to die for sins so that it would not have hold on us. He took its hold with him. When you think about it this way, you and I struggle with sin. Right? We struggle to trust God with life's difficulties. We struggle to obey his commandments. We struggle to... And sometimes we feel like we're living on the fumes of various experiences of God. Sin seems to have this mastery over us. And yet, love seems to have this overwhelming power that, that it can actually get us to obey. It can get us to trust. It can get us to experience God in new ways. Love seems to triumph over sin because it fills the desire part of our hearts. Right, you and I on the inside are creatures who love things and so we do them. We only sin because we choose to. We only sin because we love it, as a preacher once said. But if you love Jesus more, then you'll actually follow him. If you love me, Jesus said, you will obey my commandments. And so what the power of the gospel has for us is that as we see the greatest love act humanity has ever had, it has a transforming effect on the people who believe it. That is, if you really believe, if you really take the heart that Jesus' heart stopped for you, that Jesus 
stopped breathing for you, that he took on sin's penalty, which is eternal death, for you, and he did it out of love, and the Father laid down his most treasured possession for you, when that fills your heart, you will by default be changed. You will be a person who wants to obey, not because you're guilty about it, not because you feel you ought to out of obligation, but because you love him and so it becomes a joy. So fifthly, we are to know that God walks for us if we're to walk with God. Sixthly, I'm going to finish, uh, I've got a couple more, we'll go quickly. Sixthly, in order to walk with God, we need to look to him for our future. I want you to notice in our text in Genesis chapter 5 that Lamech looked to Noah for his future. He said, when he named him Noah, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our, ha- our work and from the p- painful toil of our hands. He looked to his son. He looked to his son for the future and said, this one will save us. Is that what happened? Well, yes and no. You know, Noah seemed to save uh, this generation of God's people with his family. But sin remained. Their faith was, you know, shouldn't have fully been in, Lamech's faith should not have been fully in his son because that is not what happened. It was only a temporary relief, but not a full one. So the question is, who do we look to or what do we look to for our future? Let me put it this way. What do you answer when, this, when I put this question to you? If only I have this, then all will be well. If only I have a better job, then all will be well. If only I have that relationship that I've always desired, then all will be well. If only I have better health, then all will be well. If only I have more money, then all will be well. If only I have more holidays or a better house, then all will be well. What are the things that you look to for your future? Let me ask it in a different way. Maybe a more socio-political way. If only so-and-so on the left or so-and-so on the right gets into power, then we'll be saved. Who do you look to for your future? Lamech was looking to Noah. Noah helped out temporarily, but wasn't the ultimate solution. But who or what are you looking to? What do you daydream about? What consumes your imagination about the future? Because I want to tell you, That the thing that you say, if only I have this, my life will be well. The thing that you say, if only so-and-so gets into power, then everything will be okay. The thing that you daydream about, about your future, is the thing that you really trust. That's where your faith is. If it's in a better house, your trust is is in your comfort. Your ultimate comfort being satisfied by this earth or your superannuation, or security, your finances, whatever it is, what are you living for? If we honestly look to anyone or anything other than Jesus, we have a temporary and often false hope for the future. However, we're told in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, because of the great cloud of witnesses. People like Enoch who walked with God. People like Noah who trusted God and built an ark when everyone thought he was crazy. People like Abraham whom God said go and he went. People like Abraham who God said sacrifice your son to me and he went People like Moses who went back to people after he'd murdered someone and went back to call them out of slavery. People like Joshua who went to rule unruly people. And the list goes on and on and on. This great cloud of witnesses stands before us. And they all were looking forward to something. 
their hope was in a day when the great Noah would come, the one who would really bring relief from this cursed world, the one who would not die for their sake, the one who would lay down everything for them and yet he would live eternally. He would be a greater Enoch. It seems that Enoch was taken, but he didn't deal with sin and yet Jesus' heart stopped that he might deal with sin and yet he lives again. We see resurrection is the answer to the question of well, what, who are we looking for? Jesus must be the one we look to. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Lastly, lastly, to walk with God, we need to desire to bring pleasure to the heart of God. We need to desire to bring pleasure to the heart of God. In the uh, Septuagint, which is the, the Greek uh, version of uh, the Old Testament, which was uh, pretty much what they had uh, for, for many people uh, when we have the authors writing the New Testament, they actually often refer back to the Greek version of the Old Testament because it was the best compiled version they had at the time. And that version, uh, rather than saying Enoch walked with God, it says Enoch pleased God. Enoch pleased God. He brought God pleasure. He brought God pleasure. We, of course, know that God's... So God is pleased when someone walks with him, is faithful to him, obeys his commandments. But we see in Genesis chapter 6 that God is grieved when people walk disobediently in an evil way. We see this in Genesis 6, verse 6. It says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Because earlier, the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God is grieved in his heart by sin, and yet he's pleased in his heart with obedience. He brings him pleasure to see his children walking faithfully according to his word. So let me ask you this question. Do you feel that God is either pleased or grieved by you right now? Which one do you feel? Is he pleased with you or is he grieved by you? The answer to this question will determine how your life is motivated. That is, if you feel that he is always grieved or perhaps disappointed with you, you will feel a constant sense of guilt and shame, though you might try and bury it. You will always feel like whatever you do, it's never enough. You never measure up. You're perpetually not good enough. You'll be You'll feel a sense of low-level depression in your life. You'll be engulfed by personal failure cumulatively because as you get older and you look back, you'll just, you won't look at the good, you'll look at all the things that you failed at. Suffering to you will always seem like punishment from a God who's angry with you. Or... If you feel that God is pleased with you, then you will feel joy. You will feel a sense of thankfulness, of encouragement that you wake up each day and God is with you. If you feel that God is pleased with you, you'll be a person who looks back on your life and goes, thank you, God, for all the things that you've done in my life, all the suffering that I've had that you overcame, all the difficulty that I have in you, you gave me the strength to go on. Thank you, Lord, for those challenging situations or relationships or financial problems that we had because I learned to trust you more. Suffering for you will be treated 
like something that God is working together for your good in the end. Your personal obedience will be one out of love and joy because you believe that your good heavenly Father is pleased by you. You know, Enoch couldn't undo or deal with sin for other people. Noah couldn't reverse the curse. Even Adam couldn't take them back to the garden and sort things out retrospectively. But Jesus did. Jesus gives his position as a beloved son. Remember I said earlier that the Father said out of heaven to Jesus at his baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When you come into a relationship with God and you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose for your eternal life, you have been adopted into the family of God. Jesus gives his position as a beloved son, as a gift to you. Your status changes. The best way to explain it is the position of a parent and a child. A parent loves their child. Even when they're disobedient, they love them. In fact, often so, they pour more attention onto them when they're disobedient. You often hear this from um, parents with teenagers. right? The, the more wayward or annoying or frustrating or hormonal or whatever it is they get, the parent pours more and more time and effort. Why? Because they love them. They're frustrated and angry with them because they love them dearly. You know, they're annoyed with their various misdemeanors, but they are pleased with them because they are a child. It is the relationship which the eyes that they look at. And that is the case with God for his people. If you believe that God is always grieved with you, then you do not understand your relationship to him as father. Jesus gifts his status as beloved son to us. And that, more than anything else, will change your level of obedience, enabling you to walk with God. Let's finish with that. I'm going to pray. Our Father, we want to thank you uh, for these seven ways at which we've looked that we can walk with God. Lord, we can't do this alone. Uh, We can't do this in our own strength. And by no means, Lord, do we have any power to change ourselves. Remember your word says, apart from you, we can do nothing. But Lord Jesus, you can. You did. Unlike Enoch, who was taken, you died. Unlike Noah, who was a temporary saver, you are the saviour who comes to, will come to reverse the curse and make all things right. Lord Jesus, you take us not to a garden, but to a city a place where our relationship with you is unhindered. Lord Jesus, fill our hearts with hope and faith today. Change us to be people who want to walk with you all of our days and even unto eternity. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.